Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today on our weekly broadcast, censorship increasing on college and university campuses across the United States against those who speak out in support of Palestinians or who criticizes the Israeli government policies towards Palestinians. Also, from the film to other industries, people are being penalized, again, for speaking out in support of Palestinians, even if they send a short message on social media. Our guest is Arun uh, Kundinani, author of What is Anti-Racism? and The Muslims Are Coming. He will also weigh in on what is happening in the Sudan, where thousands of lives have been lost due to conflict there. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women Communities of color and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. Those were our news headlines. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We are considering, continuing our coverage on what is happening in Gaza, the West Bank. It seems as though the whole of the Middle East now in some uh, turmoil with um, protests happening across the world, really. Thousands of protests happening and governments in the Middle East in particular, speaking out against what is happening now against Palestinians. I would like to welcome our first guest, Arun Kundinani, who is the author of What is Anti-Racism? That was published in 2023. And The Muslims Are Coming was published in 2024. Arun, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me, Margaret. Okay, so Arun, unless people have been living under a rock, I'm sure they've been hearing uh, about the headlines on what is going on. Although when one just reads what we in Pacifica call the mainstream media, you may not get (laughs) the whole story or at least uh, to dig deeper into what's going on. But Arun, you have written that a cultural shift is taking place among young people in the United States. Uh, Tell us about that as it relates to what is happening now, what increasing numbers of people are calling a genocide in Gaza. Right, right. And yeah, I think, you know, the significant thing here is that this is the first time really that um, Israel is losing its legitimacy amongst uh, especially young people in the United States. So as a you know, opinion polling is saying that at this point, most under 35s in the United States are opposed to uh, Israel's war in Gaza. Um, we're seeing very large numbers of students across um, U.S. colleges becoming active in in groups like Students for Justice for Palestine and Jewish Voices for Peace, demanding a ceasefire, a permanent ceasefire. Um, and you know, we're seeing in all kinds of ways um, this unprecedented moment. Um, one of those moments where something breaks out into the mainstream, some you know something that had been 
marginal for for some time and you know the palestinian cause had has certainly had some level of activism on on campuses um especially over the last decade but it's been pretty marginal uh but now it's broken out into the mainstream and um uh the the zionists are losing the argument um and and you know i think the direction of travel is that that is going to be true not just for young people in the united states but for for older age groups as well um over the coming period so um i mean i think that's that's a wonderful thing um i think that the issue for us at this point is that um the zionists know they're losing the argument and and so rather than uh try and engage in open debate and discussion they're now responding with censorship um with trying to penalize people for expressing support for palestinian freedom um and and they're using their wealth and their power um rather than trying to trying to uh, actually engage in the in the uh question of debate and ideas and so on um and so you know we're seeing um just very very blatant and and quite brutal um attempts to um silence students who who are advocating for palestinian freedom at the moment Right. And, you know, it's been quite uh, shocking. I know that uh, my daughter, who's a scientist, they have put out a number of statements. She was involved in um, a statement called Particles for Palestine. And there have also been other scientists speaking out. And it was really, really hard listening to her to, um, you know, to get uh, scientists signing on. I mean, a number of them signed on to Particles for Palestine as of last week. I don't have the latest number, but it was over 200 scientists from around the world. But people were feeling a lot of pressure uh, from the university. For example, if, if you're not tenured, um, if you are an immigrant <laughs> um, mm-hmm. a scientist, mm-hmm. if you're Palestinian, et cetera. So that's going on in that front. But give us then some examples of, of what you're talking about. We, you know, right. We've seen some news coverage of Columbia University. Harvard has been outrageous. Uh, right. Just tell us a bit. Right, about right. That. Well, and and you know what you're just describing is is certainly true. You know, I've spoken to very many professors who've told me that they're nervous about signing these kind of statements. Um, you know, we tend to think of universities as well, they're they're presented to us as these places of of kind of liberal free expression. Of course, we've had over the last few years all these kind of conservative arguments about freedom of speech and so on, and all those people who who made those arguments have now disappeared on the question of Palestine, of course. But you know, universities are actually very repressive institutions, and we're seeing that repression right now um, to the extent that you know um, professors who haven't yet got tenure are scared that simply by posting something on social media or making a statement, uh, signing a statement um, in support of, essentially in support of, you know, the most basic demands for human rights for Palestinians, um, that they will, you know, that that will adversely affect their career um, and have consequences for for their livelihood and their well-being, right? And so, you know, that, and and I can tell you for sure that many, many people are choosing not to sign those statements uh, out of fear. And and so, but as far as students are concerned, you know, yes, at Columbia University, um, uh, after after a series of protests on their campus, um, the university actually decided to completely suspend 
Um, the two main pro-Palestinian groups, the Students for Justice of Palestine and Jewish Voice for Peace, um, uh, you know, on on some kind of technicality, and and that means that they were basically banned from any further uh, activism on the campus uh, and lose certain kinds of funding and so on. Um, you know, in that case, I think it was a really remarkable moment when a whole bunch of other student groups then basically said, "Well, we're also going to do continuing protests." Um, uh, about what's happening in Palestine, and so it kind of actually backfired on the on the administrators there, um, and the and the movement was able actually to build from that attempted repression into something uh, much broader. At Harvard, um, the uh, president Claudine Gay has sent a letter to all the students and faculty declaring that the slogan "From the river to the sea," which is you know a widely used call for freedom for Palestinians, um, uh, that that slogan is anti-semitic and therefore has to be censored um yeah before you continue mm-hmm. tell us explain to our audience what is the controversy around that slogan from the river to the sea because there have been different explanations about what it actually means right right and and so you know this from the river to the sea palestine will be free um is um an, you know an old slogan from the palestinian freedom movement um it it refers to the the, t- the territory from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. And it says wherever there are Palestinians in that territory, which includes the occupied territories, West Bank, Gaza, as well as uh, Israel proper, where there is also a Palestinian minority population living, um, you know, in that whole region, um, that Palestinians should be free. Um, and yeah. you know, it doesn't go into, into details about what that freedom might look like in kind of, in terms of, one state, two state constitutional arrangements and so on. But it but it's simply a demand for Palestinian freedom, irrespective of where those Palestinians live in that territory. Um, it's been accused of being a slogan that um, is anti-Semitic because supposedly it implies the uh, destruction of the state of Israel. Um, but if you think that Palestinian freedom automatically means... Around. Uh-huh. If you think if you think that um, you know making a demand for all Palestinians to be free equates necessarily to the destruction of Israel, then what does that tell you about what you think about Israel? That tells you that you can't imagine Israel existing except with the oppression of Palestinians, right? Wow. So it, you know when that accusation is made, it's revealing of the person making the accusation. If you don't think that from the river to the sea Palestinians should be free, then where do you think they should be free? Right. Um, so, you know, I think I think the slogan is absolutely essential. And the attempt to, to paint it as anti-Semitic is simply a smear campaign against, um, you know, one of the most common slogans that has always been chanted by by those of us um, in the movement for for Palestinian rights. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we had a we actually had a. a the um, I think it was the Senate passing a resolution a few weeks ago. Almost, I think almost every senator voted for it. If, if I'm not mistaken, it might in fact be unanimous. In, you know, including uh, left-wing friends in the Senate, like Bernie Sanders, I think voted for it, saying a resolution saying um, that that this slogan is um, is is uh, reprehensible um, because it points to a it doesn't because it doesn't respect a two-state solution, right? Um, uh, well. Of course, a two-state solution at this point um, has been undermined um, by Israel itself with its dramatic expansion of settlements right across the territory from the river to the sea. 
um, which which fragment any possible future Palestinian state into you know a thousand pieces and make any coherent state impossible. Um, so if you if you're opposed to uh, you know, if you're if you are still a defender of a two state solution, then your your animosity should be directed at at Israel and Israel's backers in the United States. And everyone who says Israel has a right to defend itself and never says Palestine has a right to defend itself. If you if you if you say Israel has a right to defend itself and you never say that Palestine has a right to defend itself, you don't believe in a two state solution. Because a two-state solution means two states with equal rights to defend themselves. Um, so right. this is, you know, this is simply a smear on on the Palestinian camp, um, movement. Um, and and the, you know, at Harvard, the um, the motivation for for this position that the president has taken is transparently um, motivated by by financial considerations, right? Like Harvard reported that they'd lost about thirty million dollars in donations from pro-Israeli funders because those funders were annoyed that the administration hadn't censored its students. And so now it's censoring its students um, uh, uh, to, to keep those, th- those donors happy, right? And so this is people with money using their wealth to clamp down on, um, on academic freedom uh, and freedom of speech on campuses. And frankly, it's, a, it's remarkable that, that universities, that, you know, administrators at universities and the le- university leaderships that have, um, you know, been talking about freedom of speech and academic freedom in relation to other issues, suddenly now cave in the most, um, uh, you know, pathetic way um, in the face of in the face of big money. Um, and, yeah. and um, you know, we're seeing the same thing at New York University, um, where where students have been um, removed from positions um, uh, because of their position. We've seen the same at Cornell University, where uh, you know, where Cornell was, was in the name of freedom of speech earlier this year, invited um, uh, people like Ann Coulter, who's who's anti-Semitic, right? Um, openly anti-Semitic, uh, invited her to a campus and said, well, we have to let her speak uh, because of freedom of speech. And yet uh, professors at Cornell are being suspended um, uh, for their for their speech in favor of Palestine. Right. So the, the, the double standards here are, are blatant and can only be understood in terms of who's pulling the purse strings. Absolutely. And and then the um, Anti-Defamation League, uh, you write about that, and Brandeis um, Center, they also are now calling the group Students for Justice for Palestine, that they are material supporter of terrorism. I mean, this is this is really scary stuff. I mean, you have stuff going on in Florida, I'm sure in, in other states as, as well. Um, so... You're absolutely right that this it's a double standard and it is extreme. And it's it's also scary. I mean, Lisa, I've been so encouraged, Arun, by just the massive numbers of protests and demonstrations that are happening. It seems as though they are everywhere. I saw one yesterday that happened at the Tate Gallery, this historic art gallery in, in London. Um, again, and people were were there chanting from the river to the sea um, that using that particular slogan. So it's on the one hand, uh, you are just devastated because the numbers of people being killed, uh, the numbers being injured, the percentage, the high percentage of children. Some people are referring to this as a war against children. There is a 
uh, a headline, actually, of all places, the New York Times, that are saying that Gaza civilians are being killed at an historic pace in this particular thing. So there's that all of that horror happening on the one hand. On the other hand, you see young people, you see students finding their voice led by a great deal by young people who are Jewish, Jewish Voices for Peace and and others, and they're being condemned uh, for it. and, and Arun, also, we're seeing this bleeding into other other areas. There was that guy, wasn't that guy who threatened not to hire um, Harvard grads who were involved in these in these protests and that they would be so named blacklisted. To me, that means whitelisted, if you know what I mean. And uh-huh. then Susan Sarandon getting dropped uh, by her agency that she's had for a long time because of her her position. So it really feels like a campaign of intimidation. Arun. It is. And, and you know, I think the example of, of um, the call from the Anti-Defamation League and the Brandeis Center to uh, consider the Students for Justice for Palestine group to be considered um, a material supporter of Hamas is, you know, it shows you where this goes, right? Because so firstly, you know, there's no evidence of, at all that there's any, any relationship uh, of material support between Students for Justice Palestine, which is a nonviolent student group, civil rights kind of group in in uh, in U.S. campuses, and Hamas. That's that's there's no evidence of that, and none's been presented. But what they're doing is taking advantage of the legislation that has been central to the war on terror, this material support statute, which allows you to define very widely um, groups and say that these groups are. Um, are, are, if not, di- you know, not that they're directly involved in terrorism, but somehow they are, they are supporting them, um, uh, you know, in in less less concrete ways, and therefore they're as good as terrorists, and therefore they can face long sentences in prison. We, you know, right now as we speak, there's there's the Holy Land Five who were imprisoned um, shortly after 9/11 um, on it, on precisely this charge of supporting Hamas. Um, uh, and they've been in, you know, they've been in prison now for over 20 years, um, and that's what's being that's what's being um, used to intimidate students for justice for Palestine. And you know what what strikes me about this is is so if I send money to Hamas, I can be put in prison for 20 years. I have no choice as a U.S. taxpayer but to send money to the IDF, right? So you know, I I have to fund genocide. I don't have a choice in it without going to prison. And yet if I if I try and fund one of the organizations that's involved in trying to defend the Palestinian people, that that puts me in prison. You know, so the, again the you know the, the the way that the concept of terrorism is mobilized here means that you can't seriously look at this conflict and say there are two sides fighting each other um you know in some kind of way where you think oh well there's there's good and bad on both sides. The way that the terrorism concept works is is um, uh, you know, there is a power relationship here uh, in terms of what, how that affects us in the United States. We cannot lawfully support one side, and we are lawfully compelled to support the other side in this conflict with our with our money. Um, and um, uh, so, you know, I think you're right that that what's going on at the moment is that large numbers of young people have begun to understand. You know, many of these young people are involved in this in this movement right now. Are the ones who 
three years ago were on the streets um, in in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and got involved in the Black Lives Matter protest. Maybe at that time there was 16, 17, 18. That was the kind of age that um, that you saw on the streets that summer in 2020. And now, in a way, they've what what's happened is is that they've begun to understand that um, the violence that that the United States um, government and all its all its institutions as capable of is not just about black people within the United States, but it's also about imperialism in other parts of the world. And, and the question of Palestine is central to that. And so I think we have a generation that is getting politicized in new ways that is broadening all the time its conception of, of the struggles that it should be involved in. And, and it's this year has been about understanding imperialism alongside racism. Right. And and Arun, looking at the clock here, time is is flying, but we'll we'll need to have you back. We want to stay on top of of this situation. Um, Where can people go if they want to read what you have written or, you know, uh, and any publications that you would suggest, you know, that people go to, to to try to get information about what the heck is going on? I, you know, I would I would be tweeting out um, all, all the things that I would recommend on that and and my own writing on that. So so the best thing would be to get me on Twitter, which is uh, just my name, which is A R U N K U N D N A N I Arun Kundanani. Okay, well, Arun, thank you so much for your work and and thank you for joining us and and you stay well and safe. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a short station break. Um, We just uh, spoke with Arun Kundinani just about the censorship that's happening um, for students and others who are speaking out in support of Palestinians after our station break. Dr. Gerald Horn is waiting to speak with us, us about his analysis about the entire situation and also to learn a bit more about what's going on with the Sudan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
This is Margaret Prescott. <clears throat> if you've missed any part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety. You could check us out on Facebook as well. And we're heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. Just go to Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the great state of Texas. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to all of the SoundCloud listeners in the areas, all of the areas of the Middle East. And we are continuing our coverage to the horror that's going on now uh, in Gaza and spreading uh, to the West Bank and other areas. And I would like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, a voice that's been missed on Sojourner Truth over these past months as we made our transition uh, to a weekly show. I'd like to welcome Dr. Gerald Horn, who is the Morse Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books and 100 scholarly articles and reviews. Uh, and I'm not even going to say your latest book, uh, uh, Gerald, because probably since we last spoke, there's been another one. <laughs> Tell us the title of your latest book, Dr. Horn. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Second of all, a book dropped entitled, I Dare Say, A Gerald Horn Reader, and another entitled Acknowledging Radical Histories, Conversations with Gerald Horn. And actually, I'll be in Lamert Park on February 3rd to discuss and launch both. Oh, that's wonderful. And and we will certainly announce that <clears throat> and post it on, on social uh, media. And, and Gerald, you just have to update your bio and send to us because we just can't keep up with you. You write faster <laughs> than any of us could read here. Uh, but he is uh, an award-winning uh, historian and uh, regularly on the Sojourner Truth Weekly Roundtable, which will likely now become, Dr. Horn, the monthly <laughs> roundtable. So thank you for taking the time. Uh, your professor, I'm sure, you know, I don't know how much pressure uh, you are feeling, uh, but you could tell us what that looks like from your corner of uh, where, where you are based. But also, Gerald, I mean, the last time we spoke, who would have thought that this would have happened and that the numbers of lives being lost in, in Gaza. I mean, it just boggles the mind, 40% uh, children. Uh, Dr. Horn, just tell us your thoughts about what is happening right now. Well, it's difficult to conjure up a best case scenario, but I'll try. And that would involve <laughs> suggesting that we may be birthing a new world order and birth as many of your audience know, involves pain. What I mean by that is that with the founding of the State of Israel, 1947-1948, at the expense of the indigenous Palestinian population, you fundamentally saw that a number of European nations, not just Ger Germany, but particularly Germany, sought to export their questions and their issues with the presence of a Jewish population uh, due south. Not just Germany, because, of course, uh, anti-Semitism was pockmarking most of Europe. 
And in many ways, that was an essentially a Eurocentric remedy to an issue. However, the prevalence of being able to launch Eurocentric remedies is rapidly dissipating with the rise of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, the BRICS nations plus six. And so you see that we're having a new international situation. The United States has been the patron of Israel, but the power and influence of the United States is dissipating. You also see that Europe, which helped to create this issue in the first place, is splitting down the middle. Uh, Germany, of course, is standing by Israel, but that is not true for Spain, Belgium, uh, Ireland, uh, for example. You also see the rise of Islamophobia in Europe. I'm speaking of the recent elections in the Netherlands with the Freedom Party, the upcoming elections in Austria, where you will have a similar uh, Islamophobic party uh, gaining ground. And that is going to compromise the ability of the North Atlantic countries to continue gaining friends and winning inheritance in oil-rich Saudi Arabia, in capital-rich Dubai, Abu Dhabi, etc. And so that helps to explain, it seems to me, the freakout that you're seeing in the United States with regard to cracking down on dissent, uh, with regard to cracking down on student groups like Students of Justice in Palestine, uh, Jewish Voices for Peace, with regard to censuring Congresswoman Talib of Michigan for having the gumption to send out material with the slogan from the river to the sea, which only demagogues interpret as being anti-Jewish and calling for the liquidation of the Jewish people. It only calls for a certain kind of equality, and you have to question uh, why the demagogues uh, tend to interpret it in such a negative fashion. And so, uh, once again, uh, we may be on the verge of a new global situation, the birthing of a new order. Uh, Perhaps these are just birth pangs. And again, that's an optimistic reading of a very difficult situation. Um, You know, I'd say, and the, you know, you talked about the shifting of power and Arun talked about a shift that has happened among young people in the United States, including among young Jewish people in the United States, but uh, not only. And you could tell, uh, Gerald, I saw a clip of a protest that that uh, happened in uh, South Africa. Um, you know, against what is going on. The protests have been massive and they have been everywhere and they have been unrelenting. Despite the threats in the UK, the government, the prime minister there actually threatened to criminalize protests in support of of Palestine. And, And yet you have hundreds of thousands of people. This last weekend, there were 300,000 people on the street again uh, in in London. And despite, as you say, what happened with Wilder's victory in the Netherlands, uh, anti, um, who, who says that uh, Islam is, is like a cult, it's not re- a, a real religion, you know, that kind of thing, I'm an extreme right-wing guy. But nevertheless, they have been protests against him and protests um, in support of the Palestinians as well. But looking at the region, the whole region of the Middle East, there's some shifting that is happening there because there have been some criticisms 
of some of the so-named Arab states, the Persian Gulf states, for not being strong enough in their support for Palestinians. And do you sense that there is a shift happening there? I mean, is it only on the surface that um, governments are now uh, speaking out? Um, what do you, you know, what do you, what's your read on that? I think there is. I mean, look at Egypt, which has not been playing ball with regard to accepting uh, thousands, perhaps millions of Palestinians that Israel wanted to ship into the Sinai Desert. Uh, General al-Sisi did not accept that harebrained notion. Uh, General al-Sisi lectured Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in Cairo uh, in a very stern fashion just a few weeks ago. If you look at the readout of the recent phone call between General al-Sisi in Cairo and President Biden, he lectured Mr. Biden sternly due west with regard to Algeria. The parliament there has made fundamentally a declaration of war against Israel. Now, I don't expect Algerian paratroopers to be landing in Tel Aviv anytime soon, but I do think that that's a reflection of the sentiment on the so-called Arab street. You see similar demonstrations erupting in Tunisia. Recall that when the PLO was ousted from Beirut a few decades ago, they decamped precisely to Tunisia, and there's considerable pro-Palestinian sentiment there. And then with regard to the Arab League and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, about 10 days ago, they had a very important summit in Riyadh, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, which is ratcheting up the pressure against Israel. The Arab League then sent a delegation to China, then to Moscow. Uh, you should expect on Wednesday, when China assumes the leadership of the Security Council of the United Nations, that more resolutions with teeth will emerge with regard uh, to this crisis. And likewise, note that South Africa has filed a referral with regard to the war criminals in Israel with the uh, International Criminal Court, uh, Colombia and the northern coast of South America has acted similarly. Uh, President Ramaphosa of South Africa uh, was very critical, to put it mildly, of the Israeli authorities. He said that he found what happened on October 7th abhorrent, but he did not file a similar referral with regard to Hamas in the International Criminal Court. And although it has not received press attention on this side of the Atlantic yet, as we speak, there are hundreds of ships, civilian ships from Turkey, Turkey, floating towards Gaza on a humanitarian mission. I don't think that the Israeli Navy will be able to stop this flotilla. Recall that they tried to do so with a similar flotilla more than a decade ago, which led to a downturn in relations with Ankara. Uh, the fact that Israel is under pressure from the north with regard to Hezbollah, from the south with regard to Hamas, with regard to the Red Sea, with regard to the Iranian ally that is the Houthis, I don't think that Israel will be able to stymie or stop this Turkia flotilla. And so Israel is under pressure. What it's going to try to do, of course, is enlarge the problem. It's been bombing Syria, for example. It's trying to lure the United States into a wider conflict. And the fact that you have U.S. submarines off the coast of Israel is not reassuring. Uh, there are those in Washington who would like to see this conflict expanded to an 
involve an attack on Iran. That's one of the reasons that when the Yemenis uh, seized this uh, ship in the Red Sea, partially owned by Israeli interests, both Netanyahu and some in Washington pointed the finger of accusation in Iran. So this is a very perilous situation that we face. But once again, to look optimistically, it may be that we are on the cusp of a new international situation that inevitably involves pain. Yeah, and and the lives of of Palestinian uh, children, latest count. Actually, we don't know how many bodies are under the the rubble, but latest count that I heard anyway, uh, more than 13,000 killed, um, close to 30,000 injured. Of, Of those killed, at least 5,000 children um, being killed. And and interestingly enough, I mean, the Washington Post, a, a mainstream media, even they are reporting that in, um, you know, in the Gulf states that Starbucks and McDonald's, these <clears throat> U.S., uh, you know, multinationals are being boycotted and are, are, are pretty empty, actually. And that some McDonald's in Egypt are now flying both a Palestinian flag and a U.S. flag. Could you imagine, uh, given the repression that's happening, Dr. Horn, if any stores, McDonald's or any of them here in the United States started flying a Palestinian flag? You could just imagine. But that is the the level of the outrage, and rightly so, by people uh, in the region. And you're absolutely right about them pushing um, for this for this uh, war to you know, word has spread. I mean, there's there's Lebanon. Also, what the exchange is happening there. Um, Hezbollah, there, you know, there's concern about what Hezbollah might do, right? And then there's an uptick of killings. I, I read somewhere at least about 200 Palestinians killed in the West Bank, where some of the, the settlers have, uh, have, have basically taken the law in their own hands and gone after uh, Palestinians. Uh, Dr. Horn, just talk about a, a, a little bit about that. I know we want to have a save a, a, some time also to talk about the Sudan, Dr. Horn. Well, with regard to the settlers, it is very dire. Recall the article in the New York Times a few days ago talking about how the United States is shipping rifles to Israel that inevitably will be distributed to, to the settlers. There are 700 to 800,000 settlers uh, on the West Bank alone, and it's difficult to accept credibly what many of our friends talk about in terms of a two-state solution. When you have these settlers in great numbers on the West Bank, I doubt if the Israeli regime, at least as presently configured, will be moving to remove those settlers. And with regard to the settlers themselves, I doubt if they will want to live in a Palestinian state without special privileges, which they now uh, enjoy. So the two-state solution, I understand those who support it, uh, but they must come to recognize that we're rapidly running out of runway. And speaking of that, uh, let me point your audience to a striking article that appeared in the New York Times Magazine yesterday, excuse me, on Sunday, about the Madrid and Oslo process that was supposed to lead to a Palestinian state. Uh, There are many uh, takeaways from that article, but one that stuck in my mind was despite the fact that the United States was trying to present itself as an honest broker, 
there was the spectacle of the chief U.S. diplomat, speaking of Dennis Ross, who is all over cable news nowadays, basically acting as Israel's lawyer. And that suggests that the United States has been complicit, obviously, but it also has helped to mislead Israel, helped to mislead Israel into miscalculating the present correlation of forces, which has led to a change in the situation both domestically and Israel and globally since October 7th, with some intelligent commentators already suggesting that the Palestinians have won this conflict and that Israel, if it's not careful, could be on the cusp, uh, on the verge of losing it all. That is to say, having its entire identity as a state being challenged. So it's not too late for Israel to wake up. But what is rather chilling is the news reports coming out of Israel, which suggests that the populace, even though it wants to get rid of Benjamin Netanyahu, is not necessarily becoming kinder and gentler with regard to resolving this question of historic Palestine. Uh, That suggests that there are many bumps in the road ahead. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we'll we'll move on to to the Sudan uh, for a bit, but all of this, I mean, the article I referred to, they're saying people in the Middle East are now calling this an American war. Everybody knows that what is happening now would not be happening were it not for the U.S. sending billions and billions of of dollars are for weapons and 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 others. So whatever the White House says, and apparently there there's some pressure on uh, Biden, and even um, I, I read uh, something even in the Pentagon of some people who are saying, "Wait a minute." Um, this is going a bit too far. You know what I mean? Like how many lives have to be lost before it's a bit too far? Um, one headline says White House grapples with internal divisions on Israel, uh, Gaza. But um, there's no time to go into more detail on that. But that's that's just the reality, the reality of it. And it's it's such a heartbreak to see um, how many Palestinian lives are being lost. Of course, the 1,200 Israeli lives that are being lost. Nobody is, is celebrating the loss of life. I mean, a Pacifica means peace. We are for peace, right? Uh, the, the reality is, is how can peace happen um, with the, the level of, of repression and imprisonment, really, that the, the Palestinian people have been living under. But uh, Dr. Horn, before we have to go, though, uh, what's not um, you don't hear much in the news at all or about what is it about 9000 people in Sudan have now lost their lives. That was a latest count. If you could just briefly tell us what is going on there. What is this about, Dr. Horn? Sudan, you know, is the southern neighbor of Egypt. And for a number of months now, there's been internal conflict, a de facto civil war that encompasses various wings of the military. On the one hand, you have the regime based in the capital Khartoum, which is fighting a wing of the military known as the Rapid Support Forces. You can equate them to the U.S. Navy SEALs or Delta Force. It seems that the latter is not only uh, committing many depredations uh, in Sudan, particularly in Darfur, but also that it's getting the best of the regime. 
part of the problem is that this conflict in Sudan has attracted outsiders. Already, you see that Egypt and Ethiopia are lining up on different sides of the fence. Egypt and Ethiopia have a longstanding conflict about the Nile River. Ethiopia is building the Grand Renaissance Dam, which Egypt calls a threat to its lifeblood, speaking of the Nile River. Therefore, they are both uh, aiding uh, opposite sides. Uh, The same holds true for certain allies uh, of Egypt in the Gulf. As well, the Ethiopian regime has suggested that uh, it needs a port. Recall that when Eritrea, a former province of Ethiopia, seceded and declared independence a few decades ago, that uh, Ethiopia lost its window, it lost its port on the Red Sea. For, for that, a moment, just, yeah, carry on, carry on. Mm-hmm. Which which has ratcheted up tensions between Ethiopia and Eritrea, but also has meant that Eritrea and Ethiopia are now on opposite sides of the fence with regard to Sudan. And in fact, there has been rumbling and scuttlebutt that um, if Ethiopia seizes a port, it may take advantage of the unsettled nature of Sudan and see Sudan's a port, uh, which used to be called Port Said. So this is a very dangerous situation. It's putting enormous pressure in terms of refugees flooding into neighboring Chad, uh, thousands of IDPs, internally displaced persons uh, within the uh, Sudan itself. There's a danger that this conflict could bleed into South Sudan, independent, seceding from Sudan, you may recall about a decade ago, So this is a crisis that certainly deserves more attention. It's receiving attention, I'm happy to say, from the uh, international human rights community, particularly Human Rights Watch, which has been issuing report after report about the dire state of human rights uh, in that part of the world. Uh, But because of the salience in the United States of the Palestine question, all the demonstrations, which we all salute, uh, that has pushed uh, Sudan into the shadows, I'm afraid to say. Right. And it's very worrying, Dr. Orr, we're going to have to end it there. But the, the World Food Program, you talk about people fleeing into Chad. They have announced that food aid to Chad for 1.4 million people will be cut off. So we we do have to keep our eye on what is happening in this region. And Dr. Horn, we're so glad to have you uh, back on Sojourner Truth and for you to set, shed some light on this. Unfortunately, we are out of time, so we are going to have to end it there. But thank you so very much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you for inviting me. All righty. Um, I'd like to, this is Margaret Prescott. We're out of time. I'd like to thank all of uh, today's guests. I'd like to thank Eric Gertson uh, for his uh, some uh, tech help today. I'd like to thank um, Jose Benavides. 